Welcome to Season 2 of History, Books, and Wine. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey and Eliza Knight. We love sharing, so pour a glass of vino, and let's dive into the past. Welcome to History, Books, and Wine. I'm Eliza Knight, your host for this week. Today, I'm going to be talking about the scandalous Mitfords. I'm excited to share, so pour a glass of vino and let's dive into the past. But first, what am I drinking? I'm having a delicious glass of Born of Fire, a wonderful Cabernet Sauvignon that I absolutely love. Cheers! In 1904, the first of seven children were born to David and Sidney Freeman Mitford, soon to be titled the Baron and Baroness Reedsdale. Little did they know that not too long in the future, one daughter would be a famous author, another would be jailed for being a fascist, another would be the rumored lover of Hitler, one would run away with her communist lover, and yet another would buck all of that drama to become a duchess. That's a lot of drama in one family. They were all gorgeous, intelligent, charming, and quick-witted, even with their dark sides. Their names were often in the papers, and their faces even graced the cover of Tatler and other magazines. So who were they? Today I'm going to give you a little bit of background about this notorious aristocratic family, the seven children in particular, of the Mitfords. We have Nancy the novelist, Pam the countrywoman, Tom the socialite, Diana the fascist, Unity the Nazi, Jessica the communist, and Deborah the duchess. The first time I used Instacart was with my sister. We were baking cookies and I'd forgotten the butter. Instacart to the rescue. Now I even use it when we're on vacation so our staples are delivered right to our door. Save yourself that trip to the market. Instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area to shop and deliver groceries from your favorite stores. Follow the link in our show notes, and that lets Instacart know we sent you and help support our show. Plus, you'll get free delivery on your first order over $35. There's multiple stores available in most areas. Shop all your favorites on a single order. The products you love from local stores. Hand-selected by shoppers based on your preferences. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Instacart highlights deals to help you save money. Find everything you usually buy and get smart suggestions for new items. They pick the freshest produce and keep your eggs safe too. Let Instacart shop for you. The famous Mitford were a large family, starting with their matriarch, Sidney Bowles, also known as Muv, who married David Freeman Mitford, known as Favre, in 1904. David was one of many children, and the second son to Algernon, Barty, and Freeman Mitford, first Baron Reedsdale. Sidney's father was the founder of the magazine The Lady, which employed both David and eventually Nancy Mitford, their eldest daughter. In 1915, David's older brother died in the Battle of Luce, which left David as the sole heir. David didn't seem to have a good grasp of finances as he often bought and sold property more often than not with financial disadvantages. As a result, Sidney was very frugal, even raising chickens and selling the eggs. Their seven children often complained of being poor, not well-educated, and having their house seamstress make their clothes rather than designers. When asked about this in a later recorded interview, Diana clarified that they were poor in comparison to their rich, aristocratic friends, but that they did have large houses, servants, allowances, etc., 
so not poor in the sense most of us might consider when using that term. Nancy was the eldest of the Mitford children, born to David and Sydney in November of 1904. She was perhaps the instigator of all the nicknames for the parents, as well as the ones given to each of the children. Nancy herself was often called Nance, Nanceling, the old French lady, the lady, Dame, Susan, Sue, the latter two of which she and her sister Jessica cannot remember the origins of. Despite being a prolific writer and an accomplished author, Nancy complained about her lack of education as she and her sisters weren't sent away to school, but instead educated by a series of governesses and their mother, all except uh, the youngest, and I'll get to that in a bit. She credits everything she knows about anything to the free reign she and her siblings had of a very large library. They would often read together, forming a bond over books. In fact, they commandeered an entire barn for their library at one of their childhood homes. Nancy actually admitted that they were probably reading things they shouldn't because they were unsupervised. Their father allegedly said that he had read only one good book and so why should he ever read another again? While she might have thought herself uneducated, Nancy's prose and witty commentary suggest otherwise. She loved books and she read pretty much everything she could get her hands on, and then eventually became a writer herself. She often hosted literary salons with famous writers and literary notables, and she also ended up working in a bookshop during World War II. She had an extremely dry sense of humor and poked fun at nearly everyone, which you can see in all of her books that she's written. And also in a very famous article which keeps circulating to this day called You and Non-You about the various ways in which people of you, aka upper class, versus those of non-upper class status speak. And she wrote it satirically, but many people at the time took it seriously and were offended, including one of her famous author friends, Evelyn Wall. Pamela, aka Woman, was born in November of 1907, just a few days shy of Nancy's third birthday. Nancy wasn't happy to no longer be an only child, which she teased Pam about relentlessly. Nancy was sometimes called cruel by her sisters, who didn't always enjoy her teasing. But despite that, Nancy spent an awful lot of time as a child and an adult teasing her siblings, writing about them as a teenager, she dressed up as a beggar and tricked her siblings into thinking she was a stranger that was going to, like, attack them or something. She was a merciless tease, and they often thought that some of her teases went a little too far, and they called her cruel. Nancy once said to someone, Sisters are a shield against life's cruel adversity. To which Jessica replied, Sisters are life's cruel adversity. Suffering a polio attack as a child, Pam lost some mobility in her leg, which lasted throughout her life. Where Nancy was seen as more of an acerbic personality... Pamela was often calming, which is probably why on Nancy's deathbed later in life, she was happier to have her sister Pam by her side than anyone else helping take care of her. She is the least talked about of the siblings and really anyone in the family and tended to prefer a quiet country existence. Pamela's husband, Derek Jackson, whom the youngest sister Deborah had a crush on, was a renowned physicist and was a visiting professor at the Ohio State University in the 1950s. Here's a fun fact about Pam, which you might find interesting. Uh, when her sister Diana, who I'll speak about in a little bit, divorced her husband, Pam went to live on his property to care for his animals. Thomas, aka Tud, was born in 1909. Unlike his sisters, who were educated mostly at home, he went to Eton, bringing home friends that were very popular during the Bright Young Thing era, which was the young aristocratic bohemian types that partied hard during this time. And those friends also became close to his sisters Nancy and Diana. They went to all the hottest house parties, the clubs, the fancy restaurants. They met the queen, they partied with royals, and they were friends with people not, not only of noble blood, but literary icons, fashion icons, actors, singers, everything, you name it. Anyone who was anyone, these siblings knew. 
Champagne and caviar are their world. Tom famously dated a lot of celebrities, dancers, models, and actresses alike, and even, fun fact, had a brief affair with Nancy's former fiance, whom he went to Eaton with. In 1929, he and his sisters Nancy and Diana famously took place in the Bruno Hat art hoax. Think about like Banksy, but on a smaller scale. They created this hideous piece of artwork. Not that Banksy's artwork is hideous, I don't mean that at all, but it was a hyped up artist that no one had ever heard of or seen, and they created this artwork in secret. And then they held this huge exhibit for it, and we're getting tons of bids on this corkboard artwork. So I only think of Banksy because for a long time, he was a hidden artist that the pieces would just show up. So it was kind of fun like that. During World War II, Tom joined the military, serving in Italy and North Africa and he was unfortunately killed in action in Burma. Now, Diana, who I've mentioned a couple times before, was nicknamed Honks, and I have no idea why. She joined the family in 1910 and would become one of the most controversial of the siblings. Now, I say one of the most because, believe it or not, there will be another sibling who is even more controversial than Diana. Despite being six years younger than Nancy, Diana was well-known in the Bright Thing crowd, as I mentioned, they shared a lot of the same friends and went to a lot of the same parties. She was quite often modeling for various photographers, including the famous Cecil Beaton, who was also an Oscar-winning stage and costume designer, and a really good friend of Nancy's. At a young age, she married the heir to the Guinness family, Brian, but ultimately grew unhappy and shockingly chose to divorce him after the birth of their second son. Now, during this time, it was really unusual for a woman to divorce her husband, and it was more common for him to take the blame. So Brian helped her by setting up a scheme that he would be having an affair or something like that and that's how they were able to get a divorce even though it was not him that had stepped out of the marriage in fact it was diana who crossed that marital line into adultery which is surprising that he would have agreed to it unless he also wanted to get out of the marriage so in another unprecedented move and much to her mother's disappointment diana became the mistress of a man called oswald mosley a very evil man who happened to be the leader of the british union of fascists they spent a lot of time together with none other than the devil himself Hitler. You heard that right. Diana was friends with Hitler. And she spent time with the dictator and her sister Unity, who I will be talking about soon, without Oswald. So sometimes with her mother in tow and her sister, they would travel to Germany, hang out with the Nazis and their party, go to their rallies, have lunch with Hitler as if it were nothing. And that sounds insane, doesn't it? So in fact, Oswald and her married in secret. And guess who was a witness at their secret wedding? Hello, listeners. This is Lori, and I'm here to tell you that podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. We use Buzzsprout, and it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll get a great looking podcast website, detailed analytics, and more. Following the link in our show notes, let's Buzzsprout know that we sent you. Get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. 
Um, if you thought Hitler, then you were right. Yep. So, of course, this appalled Nancy, who was not a fascist at all, and more aligned probably with socialist leadings. So she was quite upset to find out that her sister was having so much FaceTime with a dictator. In fact, she believed that the country was at risk with her sister's behavior and informed on her sisters to the government about her comings and goings to Germany and her private meetings with the devilish Fuhrer. Diana was arrested for treason, along with her husband Mosley, just weeks after having given birth to her son. She had two children with Mosley as well, so two sons with Guinness Air and two sons with the fascist. Nancy felt responsible for Diana's imprisonment and guilty healings led to her sending gifts, letters, visiting with Diana's children who were living with their father, the Guinness Air, the other two Mosley children were living with Mitford parents. Nancy also threw herself into the war effort, volunteering in first aid posts during the Blitz as well as a fire watcher. She also, I think, trying to sort of like compensate for all of the fascist movements in her family, moved into her parents' family home in London to take care of uh, Jewish refugees. About 70 of them lived there with her. And she did this um, not only because she felt like she, it was something that she needed to do, but also because their mother, who was fascist leaning, remember me saying mom also went to the rallies in, in Germany for Hitler, refused to take care of the home and in fact, uh, I believe moved all of the furniture out thinking they would, it would just destroy everything by having um, Jewish refugees in the home. In any case, it's more likely that Diana's ultimate imprisonment was the responsibility of her former father-in-law, who wrote a letter to the government about her behavior and association with Hitler. And he was within the House of Lords, so probably had quite a lot of weight saying that his former daughter-in-law was a total fascist and traitor. And then again, when Diana petitioned for early release, and it looked like it might be allowed, Nancy met again with the government to warn against letting her sister out, claiming she was an extremely dangerous person. And it worked, because Diana was not let out. She was actually imprisoned for three years. Nancy never told her sister about her contribution to her imprisonment, and Diana did not find out until after Nancy had had passed away. Though they were at odds during the war, they did become close later in life, uh, which is a little bit shocking. When Diana lived in France, I think what saved their relationship was not talking about politics in the end, and they just agreed to disagree on those horrible things. You know, some things at, at dinner are off limits, and they had, you know, grown up together and been friends for such a long time that I think Nancy really tried hard to sort of overlook her sister's dark side. I should say. Next up in the Mitford sibling lineup is Unity Valkyrie, also called Bobo, another name I have no idea why they would call her that. She was born in 1914 in London, though she would brag later that she was conceived in Swastika Canada, as it was the symbol of the Nazis whom she idolized, and to her that sort of felt like fate, if you will. Not something that I would want to claim as my fate, but she wasn't altogether there, I guess. So at some point in her teen years, she became enamored with Germany and Hitler and the Nazi ideals. She convinced her parents to enroll her in a language school in Munich. And prior to getting there, she had pretty much been obsessed with meeting Hitler. You know, most girls of her age had pictures of Laurence Olivier on their wall that they would, you know, kiss goodnight every night, wishing they could meet the handsome actor. She had pictures of Hitler. That just kind of gives you a little bit of an explanation of where her mindset was. So when her parents agreed to let her move to Munich to learn German, which wasn't unusual, a lot of girls, in fact, she had a lot of friends that go with her. So that was a whole nother story. But in any case, she was obsessed with meeting Hitler and she decided that once she was there, she was gonna make that happen. 
She found out where he had lunch quite often. And so she would go there every day and wait for him to show up. And when he did, she introduced herself to him. He was so incredibly charmed by her that he allowed her to have lunch with them. And, and they developed sort of like a friendship where she would go with him to his various rallies. She would visit his house. And at some point, she actually went with him to an apartment where he was evicting a Jewish family that he was then giving to her. And she was planning on all these different designs that she was gonna redo of their house and what furniture she would need. Of course, she never admitted to knowing what happened to the family that lived there because they were most likely, okay, not even let's say most likely, they were definitely deported to a concentration camp and she did not care because Unity hated Jewish people. I don't know why, but she wrote essays about it and she spoke about it at rallies and she was like Hitler's number one fan. As the tension between her home country of England and Germany ramped up, she would say to anyone who would listen that she did not want to live if her home country and the country she loved went to war. She just couldn't seem to handle that those two things happening, especially because a lot of people weren't necessarily aware of this, but Hitler planned to ultimately conquer England because he wanted to live there. He was obsessed with England, and that was like the ultimate prize for him. She, of course, you know, loved that idea as well, because then she could have her home country and her Fuhrer. So anyways, England declared war on Germany, and she was declared an enemy alien and told she had to return to England because she couldn't stay there as an enemy alien. She would have been arrested and put into a camp herself, just the law, even though her BFF was Hitler. Don't know how that worked, but in any case, this pushed her over the edge and toward the vow that she had made to end her life. Unity went to a park in Munich called the English Garden, oddly enough, and with a pearl-handled pistol, shot herself in the head. Someone found her, crazily enough, alive. The bullet had lodged in her brain and did not kill her, so she was taken to the hospital, where they determined they couldn't remove the bullet or else she would actually die. So when Unity woke up and realized that she was still alive, she was irate that it had not happened. She happened to turn to see her bedside table that her swastika pin was there. And so she quickly swallowed it in another attempt at suicide. This required an emergency surgery to have the pin removed. Once again, they saved her life. Interesting fun fact for you all. The gun she shot herself with was a gift from Hitler. Okay. It was rumored that they were lovers, but there is nothing to necessarily substantiate that besides conjecture. Eva Braun, who was Hitler's girlfriend, then his wife, did write a jealous note in her diary in regards to Unity, which I think has been part of the reason that that rumor is kept alive, besides the fact that, you know, he got her an apartment, he paid for her hospital bills, blah, blah, blah. They're all evil people. He paid for her hospital bills, as I said, and then he had her removed to Switzerland from Germany because when she was able to travel, because Switzerland was neutral territory. This was arranged so that she could get safely back to England because ultimately that's what still needed to happen. She could not remain there with their two countries at war. She was still a British citizen. Despite her protests and actually the protests of the many good people on the UK front who didn't think bringing home a Hitler uh, lover and Nazi was a good idea, especially since they did not plan to imprison her. They did not think that that was fair, and rightly so. If her sister was going to be imprisoned for three years for marrying the British fascist leader, then maybe the BFF of Hitler should also be imprisoned? Question mark. Anyways, despite not agreeing on politics and being quite horrified at what was happening with her family, Nancy did go with her mother to help her bring the sister home. They were inundated by journalists and paparazzi. Uh, someone messed with their car, which caused them to have to stay longer. But they did eventually get home where Nancy, when she could, 
tried to help care for her sister who was now sort of nothing more than a six foot tall baby. Oh yeah, did I mention the Mitfords were extremely tall. Their brother was over six foot. Uh, Unity was tallest at uh, about six foot herself. And then the other siblings were around 5'10ish. And then the tiny one was uh, Deborah the youngest was um, much shorter than all of them. That was just a fun fact about their height. So anyways, why wasn't Unity imprisoned? Well, as it turns out, while shooting herself in the head didn't kill her, it did render her mentally impaired. And she is said to have had the mental capacity of a 10-year-old. She was prone to tantrums, saying strange things often. She had incontinence, all of that stuff that made them think like, oh, well, imprisoning her with this sort of mental capacity would be like imprisoning a child. But people who met her after this whole thing happened, they claimed afterwards that they could still see something evil and dark lurking in her eyes and that she would continue to say horrible things about Jewish people throughout the rest of her life which didn't end up being too long. Um, in 1948, she contracted meningitis, which was related to the bullet that remained in her brain, and she did pass away. So prior to passing away, uh, Unity's sister Nancy struggled obviously with her Nazi and fascist sister's choices and beliefs, and she was appalled that her parents allowed it to continue. But then again, you know, is it really surprising because her mom also kind of found Hitler to be charming? So that kind of says a lot about why they would have allowed her to do that. The father, at some point had also been sort of Nazi-leaning, had a huge turnabout at some point during the war and even spoke at the House of Lords during Parliament, you know, renouncing it. And he went 100% the other way. And I think at that point, the, the mom and the dad Sydney and David actually had a rift in their marriage and started to really separate because they were not believing in the politics together. And they also weren't living together anymore at that time. So back to the siblings, Jessica Lucy, AKA Decca, was the second youngest of the Mitford siblings born in September of 1917, nearly 13 years younger than Nancy. She was also quite controversial in her politics, swinging from the opposite direction of Diana and Unity, however, who were art fascists. Jessica was a communist. Growing up, she always thought herself different from her family and decided she was going to run away. She had a running away fund um, that she'd been saving up for for years. And when she was about 18 or so, she did just that. She eloped with a man, well, if you consider an older teenager to be a man, I think he was 19 or something at the time. Esmond Romilly was his name, and they eloped to Spain, saying they were going to help fight in the Spanish Revolution. Romilly happened to be the nephew of Winston Churchill, though many actually thought he was Churchill's son due to Churchill have having some sort of affair with his mother at some point, but it was never proven or claimed or anything like that. Distraught by this turn of events, Nancy and her husband, Peter Rod, sailed to Spain in order to bring the lovebirds home. But of course, two lovebirds refused. They were on a mission to save the world and they were not going to listen to any mommies or daddies that were making them come home, even if literally the entire military had like rerouted some ships to bring these kids back. But they said no, even when they were bribed with money, because of course, two young kids with no job fighting uh, for another country. They were not getting paid very much, if anything. No amount of money would bring them back. They said, heck no, we're staying here. And so Nancy went back home to tell her family the bad news. Eventually, the two did move back to London. And instead of living with their aristocratic families or accepting any sort of allowance which would do them, they took up residence in a small flat of London's East End, which happened to be quite small and filthy, allegedly. And they were working, which of course was like, shocking, you have a job? Oh my God, I can't believe you have a job. Why would you have a job? 
But anyways, they, they were adamant that they were going to work for a living and support themselves. They eventually got pregnant. And again, the family was like, now you're gonna have a baby. You can't bring up a baby in squalor, come home or we'll help you you know, live somewhere else that's better. They said, no way. And the neighborhood ended up having an epidemic of the measles. Unfortunately, Jessica and her baby both contracted the disease. Quite sadly, her family offered to bring them out or to at least um, have a nurse come take care of them. And it was refused. Uh, the help, any help was refused. They were, I think, a little bit too prideful. Ultimately, the poor baby passed away from the disease and Jessica and her husband, completely distraught by this loss and devastated, ended up emigrating to the United States where they became pregnant with another daughter in 1941. Around that same time, her husband joined the um, military and to fight World War in World War II and he uh, was lost and presumed dead. His plane crashed somewhere. Uh, Jessica believed he would be found, but he just never was, which was quite awful to have lost their child and her husband. At least she still had one child alive. But And so her family once again entreated her to come home, but she refused. She wanted to remain in D.C. with her daughter, and she ended up becoming involved in the American Civil Rights Movement, which is where she met her second husband, Robert, a civil rights lawyer. They had two children, a boy and a girl, and their son, unfortunately, was hit by a bus when he was 11. So tragically, Jessica lost two children. She was involved with civil rights activism until she passed away. She was also a writer, and um, one of her most famous works is Ons and Rebels, which was semi-autobiographical. Some people accused her of ripping off of Nancy's book, The Pursuit of Love. But really, if you look at it, both of those books were semi-autobiographical and they both took a lot of inspiration from their own lives as children. So that's probably why. In any case, she was also an investigative journalist and she penned The American Way of Death, which is about the funeral industry. She was also a musician and even recorded a duet with her good friend, Maya Angelou. In the library at Ohio State University, there is a huge collection of Jessica Mitford's uh, videotapes, slides, letters, newspaper clippings, everything like that, that was donated of hers. I was lucky enough actually to visit the library and view this collection with my daughter, who is a student at Ohio State and works in the rare book room. It was really cool to read the letters and various newspaper clippings and all of that stuff. I really thought that was awesome. The youngest of the brood is Deborah Debo, Vivian, the youngest, uh, born 1920, she is nearly 16 years younger than Nancy the eldest and was perhaps the most traditional of all the siblings. Her playmates growing up were Jessica and Unity because they were such a tight-knit trio. Their eldest sister, who I mentioned before was kind of a mean teaser, nicknamed them Knit, Sick, and More, taking the middle parts of each of their names, which was extremely clever and also not very nice. <laughs> so despite that, they all were very close. And as I mentioned earlier, Deborah was the only daughter who was sent to school, probably because their mother was exhausted by that point and also was having to take care of Unity. So I think she just couldn't handle the responsibilities of also educating her teenage daughter at the time. The thing is, Debo hated school and she did not stay even a full year and came home and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. At some point during her society come out and subsequent debutante season, she met and fell in love with a young, handsome nobleman named Andrew Cavendish. He was the second son of the Duke of Devonshire. Since he was a second son, she did not expect to become a duchess. After all, her brother-in-law, Billy, was young and healthy. 
Billy had in fact married Kick Kennedy, sister to John F. Kennedy, just before he was shipped abroad for war. Tragically, he was also killed in action shortly after leaving. Deborah then took her position as Duchess. It was a position she took extremely seriously for the whole of her life, working to build the dukedom and the estates up to their former glory and to become sort of more like a producing business, if you will, a lot of the aristocracy holdings lose money. And so it was her focus to really make sure that they made money. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! There you have the scandalous Mitford siblings. They were not satisfied with mediocrity and all but Pam seemed to enjoy the attention of whomever it was they were preening or preaching in front of. But even she married a famous physicist that her younger sister had had a crush on. So I think there was a little bit of that in there. Um, just didn't come out as fiercely as the others. There was a nearly a 16 year difference between Nancy and Deborah, which created a divide within the siblings sometimes aka factions, if you will. The older siblings, Pam, Nancy, Tom, Diana, were much closer growing up than the younger three, Unity, Jessica, and Deborah. But despite that, they all seven remained close anyway. The younger set had their own language that they called Battledidge, and often had secret sibling meetings in the cupboard, which um, Nancy made legendary in her book, The Pursuit of Love. All of her siblings appear in some way or another in her novels, and her most famous, The Pursuit of Love, is often claimed to be some. So despite all that, I think in a nutshell, the best way to describe their dynamic would be complicated. They were close, they loved each other fiercely, but that didn't mean there wasn't rivalry that could grow vicious. There was always a bit of also, um, it's okay if I make fun of my sister, but don't you dare, you stranger. And despite their differences, and I mean extreme differences, when one of them needed the other, they would tend to drop everything and help the other sibling. I think this shows genuine affection despite their vast differences, which is sometimes rare in larger families, especially with such a wide age span. But, you know, they understood each other like no one else because of the way that they grew up. They went in close proximity with each other and not being sent away to school, they were each other's closest friends throughout childhood. If anything, they were able to bond over their parents who were zany in their own right. And their father really would chase them on a child hunt where he send them into the fields and woods and he would set out the hounds and he would hunt them on horseback. That is the Scandalous Mitford Sisters. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode and I would be super curious to know if you had heard of the Mitford before, which I have sometimes heard of them being referred to as the Kardashians. That's it for the Mitfords, but next up on the show, what am I reading? I am a sucker for a thriller, so this week I've been reading Ruth Ware's The It Girl. Here's a little bit about the book. April Clark Cliveden was the first person Hannah Jones met at Oxford, vivacious, bright, occasionally vicious, and the ultimate it girl. She quickly pulled Hannah into her dazzling orbit. Together, they developed a group of devoted and inseparable friends. 
Will, Hugh, Ryan, and Emily during their first term. By the end of the year, April was dead. Now, a decade later, Hannah and Will are expecting their first child, and the man convicted of killing April, former Oxford reporter John Neville, has died in prison. Relieved to finally put the past behind her, Hannah's world is rocked when a young journalist comes knocking and presents new evidence that Neville may have been innocent. As Hannah reconnects with old friends and delves deeper into the mystery of April's death, she realizes that the friends she thought she knew all have something to hide, including a murderer. So I really enjoyed this book. It was super fast page turner. I really, really enjoyed it. Next up, I want to tell you about a book of my own. An episode of The Mitfords would not be complete without a plug for my novel, The Mayfair Bookshop, which is a brilliant dual narrative story about Nancy Mitford, one of 1930s London's hottest socialites, authors, and a member of the scandalous Mitfords, and a modern American book curator desperate for change connected through time by a little London bookshop. In 1938, she was one of the six sparkling Mitford sisters known singing quips, stylish dress, and bright green eyes. But Nancy Mitford's seemingly sparkling life was really one of turmoil, with a perpetually unfaithful and broke husband, two Nazi sympathizer sisters, and her hopes of motherhood dashed forever. With war imminent, Nancy finds respite by taking a job at the Haywood Hill Bookshop in Mayfair, hoping to make ends meet and discovers a new life. And in present day, when book curator Lucy St. Clair lands a gig working at Haywood Hill, she can't get on the plane fast enough. Not only can she start with the healing process from the loss of her mother, it's a dream come true to set foot in the legendary store. Doubly exciting, she brings with her a first edition of Nancy's work, one with a somewhat mysterious inscription from the author. Soon she discovers her life and Nancy's are intertwined, and it all comes back to the Little London Bookshop, a place that changes the lives of two women from different eras in the most surprising ways. Yay! I hope you have enjoyed today's episode on the scandalous Mitbirds. Coming up, we have episodes with guest authors Evie Hawtree and Catherine Levesque, along with two super fun haunted history episodes, La Laurie Mansion in New Orleans with Laurie and Slane's Castle in Scotland with me. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's episode, click on the show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HistoryBKSWine for additional historical tidbits and updates. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcast. That way you're notified every time a new episode is live. Subscribes and reviews help us get noticed. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to check out our episodes published weekly on Tuesdays. Until next time. Cheers. And happy reading.